Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of, what are we calling this? The Glenn Greenwald Podcast. I'm always dazzled by the inventiveness of the name that we chose for this program each time I'm privileged enough to say it. I suppose it's worth noting that since the last time we convened here, there was an outbreak of a new war, um, a war in Europe. I think we're supposed to hasten to add as though that has some special meaning about why we're supposed to care about this war more than we should care about all the many other wars that have flared and are still flaring, just not in Europe. Um, So for those who find a lot of meaning in that, I just wanted to make sure to add that. The format of the show, for those of you who might be new, is I will talk for um, a certain amount of time. I'll try and make it limited um, because one of the best features of this app is that it fosters great interactivity with uh, any of you who are listening. Um, You can, if you, at any time, uh, when you have a question you want to pose or a comment you want to make or just some point you want to raise, you can click the phone icon that will automatically put you into the queue. And uh, when I'm done with my preliminary remarks, I will try and leave as much time as possible to get to as many people as I can who are in the queue to make sure that we're having uh, a back and forth, which is always um, one of the best parts of this show for me. Um, So I want to, just kind of cover a couple of points that I raised in the article I wrote over the weekend that I published yesterday, actually at Substack, but also talk about a couple of the new developments that have arisen since then. Um, Because there's obviously in any war, things move very quickly. There's barely a day goes by when something significant Uh, doesn't happen. That changes the landscape. That's certainly true of this war, which has been a very fast-moving war with all kinds of significant moving parts. And even since I published that 5,000-word article uh, on Sunday afternoon, there's already a lot of things that have happened within the last 24 hours that I think are very worth talking about and that either supplement or in some way alter slightly the analysis that I, I published on Uh, on Sunday. What I really wanted to do in that article and what I want to start off doing now is not so much make specific arguments about the war itself, but instead comment on the meta aspect of the war, which by which I mean the way in which our discourse is unfolding, because that plays a very significant role in how it is that we're thinking about the war, how it is that where we're getting our information from, how reliable that information is, and therefore what it is that's motivating or influencing our decision-making about the things we're willing to affirm or support. And I think there are a couple of vital points about that that are really worth emphasizing. Because precisely because things are so fast-moving and all of this is very jarring and significant and triggers our emotions in lots of ways to see a full on war, like an outbreak of a new war between not just two countries with formidable armies, one far more than the other, but with the involvement, the heavy involvement of many countries around the world who have very significant 
powerful weapons to use, economic, political, military, including obviously the United States is playing an increasingly important role in this conflict on the other side of Russia, which happens to be the two biggest nuclear armed powers, the two countries with the largest nuclear stockpiles that already makes it an incredibly high stakes debate when we're just kind of glued to social media or to media. I think it's important sometimes to take a step back to see the broad strokes of what's happening, because sometimes clinging to each day to day development can make us lose sight of those. And so one observation I want to make that I don't think is even controversial, but it doesn't mean we're all thinking about it as much as we should, is the fact that in the United States, and I think even one could say uh, in the broader Western world, um, there is clearly more uh, unity, more uh, cohesion about this war than there has been about any significant event since at least 9-11. If you look across the ideological spectrum, and obviously there are some exceptions, some dissidents, some divergence, but if you look at, let's say, the political class in Washington, meaning elected officials or officials in important positions in national politics and the executive branch or otherwise, you will find almost no differences in terms of how people are thinking about this war. And I don't just mean on the most general and basic question of whether people believe that Russia is at fault or Russia's invasion is unjustifiable. I don't think you can barely find anybody of any significance with any platform who was willing to say that they think Russia's invasion of Ukraine was morally or legally justifiable. It's clearly not legally justifiable. There's no foundation in international law that could justify it. Morally, you can try and assign blame to other parties, but I think it's very difficult to make the argument that overall Russia's invasion is morally justified. You might want to say that there are some geostrategic or geopolitical arguments that Russia is making that are valid about why they felt it was in their national security to do or why they felt legitimately threatened. That would not say be the case for the U.S., UK-led invasion in 2003 of Iraq, not right on that, those countries' borders, but all the way across the world, in a country where a major superpower wasn't, for years, interfering or attempting to turn the country into a colony the way the United States was doing with Ukraine, but just this like very, almost random country that in no way was a threat to the United States. You could certainly say that Russia has more geopolitical rationale. Um, but even if you want to say that, it doesn't turn the, the war into one that's justifiable morally or legally or in any other way. So certainly on that basic question, is Russia's invasion unjustifiable? There's virtual unanimity in the American political and media class on that question. Close to unanimity, which is very rare for there to be 
unanimity from Bernie Sanders and AOC through the Democratic Party and Republican Party establishment, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, all the way to the more right wing Republicans on questions of foreign policy like Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham. And they're just you listen to them, they're all saying exactly the same thing. And they're not only saying the exact same thing on that most basic question, which is, is Russia's invasion unjustifiable? They're they're on on many more important questions than just that. They're in full scale agreement, including whether or not the United States should have a significant role in, quote unquote, defending Ukraine from the Russian attack. So it's not just this abstract moral question or legal question about blame or or culpability that there's unanimity in the political class toward. But there's also close to full scale unanimity on the even more specific and more substantive question of what the U.S. posture ought to be toward this war. Remember that the person who has probably been most vilified, rightly or wrongly, but most vilified in the in the weeks leading up to this conflict, the person who has been most often demonized as a pro-Putin spokesperson or an agent of the Kremlin was Tucker Carlson. And if you actually go and look at what Tucker Carlson was saying that distinguished him from this consensus, this unified consensus, he wasn't saying ever that he thought Vladimir Putin would be justified in bombing Ukraine or invading Ukraine. He never said anything like that, got even close to that. He was essentially saying he was a dissident on that second order question of what the U.S. role ought to be, which is, should the U.S. have a role? And his argument was... I don't think Ukraine is of significant enough interest to the American people and to our lives to make it justifiable for the U.S. government to spend a lot of resources or risk getting embroiled in a military conflict, much less risk American lives in defense of Ukraine, a country that just isn't that important to the United States. And the fact that that was all it took for him to be the leading kind of traitor you know, right in the aftermath of 9-11, a lot of people played that role for minor dissidents as well. But the fact that that's all it took for him to become demonized, not just on the left and by the media, but a lot of his longtime supporters on the right as a Russian agent or as the main trader shows you how little room there is for dissent, that you couldn't even say something that mild. Now, why do I say that that's mild? to argue that Ukraine is not enough of an American vital interest to make it worth involving ourselves in this war. It's because for a long time prior to February, this was a not just mainstream argument or an acceptable argument to make, but an extremely common one to hear. You know, I keep bringing this up because I think it really emphasizes the point better than anything I can think of. And I hope you'll actually go do this. You'll take a look at what I'm going to reference. The idea that Ukraine is and always will be of direct vital interest to Russia, but is never and never will be, has never been and never will be a vital interest to the U.S. And therefore, the United States, of course, would never risk 
a confrontation with Russia over something that it would never care nearly enough about the way Russia would, the person who was the most eloquent and frequent and vocal proponent of that view was named Barack Obama. And he didn't just say that in 2009. He said it in 2016 on his way out the door in an interview with the neoconservative editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg. People have forgotten that one of the main Republican attacks on Obama from that militaristic pro-war crowd of then John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio, people like Tom Cotton, was that Obama was too weak or too scared to stand up to Putin, which ironically became the Democrats' main attack against Trump. But it was said all the time about Obama. And they didn't concoct some unhinged scandal in order to justify saying that they were pointing to very substantive and serious policy disputes with Obama that they had. And it wasn't, by the way, just hawkish members of the Republican Party, but also hawkish members of the Democratic Party who shared the view that that, that Obama was insufficiently confrontational with Putin and with Russia, including his own Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, who made no secret of the fact that she thought that but also lots of other members of Congress and the Senate. And their anger toward Obama was steeped in his refusal to, for instance, send lethal arms to Ukraine. They wanted him to flood Ukraine with lethal weapons to basically fuel an insurgency against Russia to protect Ukraine from Russian aggression. And Obama, for years, refused to do that. And the D.C. political class on a bipartisan basis was angry with him. And not only that, but Obama, probably the thing that made D.C. elites the angriest about was the fact that he had drawn what was called a red line in Syria that said Bashar al-Assad cannot use chemical weapons. And if he does in that in that war, that will be a red line for us, meaning we would militarily attack Assad if he did. And then certainly the consensus was Assad crossed that red line. He used chemical weapons and Obama failed to confront Syria militarily because he didn't want to, again, get into a conflict with Russia over the question of who should be governing Syria, because he didn't view that question, who's governing Syria, Bashar al-Assad or some other person we put in as a meaningful or important enough interest in the United States to worth worth risking a war over. And so in both of those instances, Syria and also uh, Ukraine, the DC view was that Obama was recklessly dovish or insufficiently confrontational. And so in this amazingly deep interview, he gave Jeffrey Goldberg a lot of time because Jeffrey Goldberg tellingly is one of Obama's favorite journalists. He sat down for hours to do this in-depth, uh, interview about what is Obama's worldview on foreign policy. And the title of the Atlantic article is the Obama Doctrine, which was sounds pompous, like I'm going to be the, the art. This is going to be the article that gives the definitive version of what is Obama's foreign policy worldview or ideology. But it was pretty a pretty reasonable and apt headline because that's exactly what it did. And in that article, Jeffrey Goldberg wrote several paragraphs making clear that what Obama told him was what today you're not allowed to say. 
is what today what is what Tucker Carlson spent the last several weeks saying pretty much his main argument that caused him to be widely demonized as a Kremlin agent. Obama's argument was, if you look at history, if you look at a map, there's almost nothing more important to Russia than Ukraine. It's the most sensitive and vulnerable part of the Russian border. It was the place that Germany used twice in the 20th century to launch near extinction level attacks on Russia that caused Russia to lose tens of millions of people. Obviously, if you do something like threaten to put NATO in that country to make that country a NATO member, or you flood that country with lethal arms, it would be deeply, deeply threatening, not just to Putin or hardliners in the Pentagon, but to basically every Russian leader, no Russian leader could tolerate that. That's not RT talking or Steve Bannon or Tucker Carlson in February. That's President Obama in 2016. That was his main view of Ukraine and Russia. And he never abandoned it. And so to me, it's amazing that what was so, I mean, you don't get more mainstream than President Obama, the beloved two-term Democratic president. And the fact that that was the core of his foreign policy view of Russia and Ukraine. And of course, he had that other famous moment in 2012 where he mocked Mitt Romney for talking about Russia as the number one geopolitical foe. And the argument of Democrats is that may have been true in the Cold War, but that's definitely not true now. We Not only are they not our number one foe, we partner and cooperate with Russia all over the world. They were instrumental in forging the Iran deal, which, whether you favor that or not, was a critical foreign policy goal of Obama officials. They also worked together in Syria, Russia and the United States did, on choosing targets of in, that they had in common as enemies, including ISIS and al-Qaeda, both of which were fighting to overthrow Assad. And Putin has long viewed Islamic radicalism as a serious threat. So Obama's argument was we should work with them, partner and cooperate with Russia, not view them as an enemy, in part because it's dangerous to do that, and in part because they're not as serious enough power. They have the economy the size of Italy. So it was incredibly strange, but also very telling about how repressive the discourse is, that for doing nothing more than basically mimicking what was the core view of Barack Obama toward Russia and Ukraine. And remember, as I said, it wasn't 2009, it was 2016. So not only not only after the Russian invasion of Georgia, but also the Russian annexation of Crimea, and already pretty serious signs of Russian interference in eastern Ukraine after the, whatever you want to call it, the chain of government, the coup in 2014 that caused Ukraine to go from a Moscow-friendly government to a hostile to Moscow and pro-EU government. After all that happened, Obama was still saying it's a vital interest to them and not to us, and therefore we shouldn't confront Russia over it. And he even had a part of the article where he said to Jeffrey Goldberg, who was pushing him on it, because clearly Jeffrey Goldberg was one of his critics, he said, look, if you or anyone else in Washington want to stand up and make the argument that we should go to war with Russia or risk war with Russia over Ukraine, I challenge any of you to stand up and make that explicit. 
and let's bring that debate to the American people and let them decide if they think risking a war with this major power over Ukraine, something that they should barely care about, is something they're willing to support. He knew he had a lot of confidence that the American people would be on his side in that view. And until two weeks ago, they were. Polls showed that a small minority of people, something like 20 percent, said yes when asked if the U.S. should play a, quote, major role in any conflict between Russia and Ukraine. I think another 45 percent or so said yes, they should play a minor one. And maybe 30 to 35 percent said no role at all. So to watch Tucker Carlson be that ostracized and demonized just for making again, a point you probably a lot of you don't agree with, but one that has been the consensus in Washington for years. It was all also, by the way, President Trump's view. That was really the first sign of how little tolerance there was in American political discourse for any questioning whatsoever. Again, not just on the broadest, most, the highest level of generalization question, which is, should Russia be condemned, but on the question of what the U.S. role should be. All Dr. Carlson was saying was the U.S. role should be non-existent. But also, I would say this person who was the second most demonized and vilified in the weeks leading up to the war in Ukraine was former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, the attacks on her were vicious. I mean, she was routinely being called a traitor. A traitor. Someone who has been an American citizen her whole life and who, unlike many of the people calling her that, voluntarily went and risked her life to fight for the United States in Iraq for years. And someone who is still in the U.S. Army Reserves and does a great deal of work with the U.S. Army. I believe she's now risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel. And what was Tulsi Gabbard's crime that caused her to be demonized with such vitriol? All she was saying was that this war would be so devastating to Ukrainians, to Russians, and to the prospect of world peace. It would be so horrific that we, the United States, should do everything in our power to avert it. And specifically, what she was arguing we should do was give the Russians their primary demand, which was formally promise that we would cease any efforts to put Ukraine in NATO. That's what the Kremlin was claiming was their principal grievance about why they viewed Ukraine as a threat to their national security in the United States and NATO countries were moving to put them into NATO. And all the United States had to do was say, that won't happen. And she was arguing that we should do that, in part because there's no reason to put Ukraine in NATO, precisely because no one in the United States, or virtually nobody, wants to go fight Russia over Ukraine, which we would have to do if we gave NATO membership to Ukraine. And because... Everybody was more or less implicitly saying Ukraine isn't going to be a member of NATO. Ukraine was even saying they don't really want to be because of how provocative it would be. So why not just take this eventuality that everyone knows is inevitable and just formally formalize it? 
was Tulsi Gabbard's argument. Now, it is very possible that the Russian argument that their main grievance was NATO membership for Ukraine was really just a pretext. And that had the United States given them what they were saying they wanted to avoid war, Putin would have found a pretext, a different pretext for attacking Ukraine anyway. We'll never, ever know. We'll never know the outcome of that counterfactual. That moment has passed. But I hear now a lot of people saying that advocating that, advocating that the U.S. should promise that we won't put Ukraine in NATO is some kind of a fringe appeasement policy, which is blatantly untrue, that that's just an obvious pretext for Putin, that clearly you'd have to be an idiot to believe that if you actually gave Putin what he wanted and formalized the commitment not to put Ukraine in NATO, you'd have to be an idiot to believe that would have stopped his invasion, that he was really just invading because he wants conquest, he wants to reunite the previous Soviet empire, he intends to move on to other former Soviet republics. Now, again, there's no way to know because what Tulsi Gabbard advocated didn't happen. The argument of Secretary of State Blinken was that, look, even though people are right when they say it's unlikely Ukraine will ever be in NATO, the principle of open doors of our right to put whoever we want into that military alliance is so sacrosanct that we can't possibly renounce it, even if doing so might help avert an incredibly cataclysmic war in which many people are going to die. I guess in the eyes of the U.S. government, this principle is so sacred that we can put anyone we want in NATO at any time. We never will agree that we won't put a country in NATO, that we're willing to risk the outbreak of an incredibly dangerous and terrible war in order to safeguard this incredibly important, vital principle. Now, I don't really understand how anyone can believe that. The, the closest the United States and Russia got to potentially ending the world through nuclear annihilation was in 1962 when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, when Cuba, the sovereign government of Cuba, urged Russia to place nuclear weapons on Cuban soil as a deterrent to prevent another American invasion. And Russia agreed. Nobody in the United States said, oh, well, these are two sovereign countries. They have the right to do whatever they want. If Cuba wants Russian nuclear weapons on their soil, who are we to tell them they can't have it? Nobody in Washington thought that way. In fact, The argument was the exact opposite, which is this is so directly menacing to the United States to have Russian weapons of that kind on our border, 90 miles away from our border. Washington came close to having a nuclear exchange with Moscow over that. That's how threatening that was viewed to the United States. And obviously, if you want to modernize that hypothetical, obviously, if China or Russia formed a new military alliance, and then invited and placed in it Mexico and Canada and various Caribbean countries like Cuba and countries in our quote-unquote backdoor 
in Latin America, like Venezuela or Bolivia or Ecuador or Peru, I can promise you that the position of Washington would not be, oh, well, Mexico and Canada and Venezuela and Cuba are sovereign countries and they have the right to join whatever military alliances they want. That would especially be untrue if at the same time that Russia or China did that, maybe we can say Russia and China at this point did that kind of a military alliance. They were flooding Mexicans and Cubans and Canadians and Venezuelans with lethal weapons explicitly designed to fight Americans. And at the same time, we're essentially treating those countries as colonies, running, micromanaging the the politics of those bordering nations and to the point of dictating who their leaders would be, who their sub-leaders would be, as the United States has been doing in Ukraine. Of course, the United States would view that as deeply, deeply threatening and would not tolerate it. So I guess maybe the only way to say that, well, of course we wouldn't tolerate it, but Russia should, is if you believe in American exceptionalism. The idea that that America, the United States, is so clearly the most superior country in the world that we shouldn't just constantly congratulate ourselves for that, but we're actually entitled to just completely different standards. That The rest of the world has one set of standards from which we're exempted by virtue of our superiority. That's not an uncommon view in the United States. That's a pretty common view. But in terms of what Tulsi Gabbard said, this is the only point I want to really emphasize, is that whatever else you think about what she said, that the United States should have agreed not to put Ukraine in NATO because doing so is so provocative to Russia, the one thing that you cannot say about that is that that's some new invention that's such a fringe, crazy, obviously ridiculous view that only a gullible person would think. Because just like the view that Tucker Carlson was defending, that the United States that should not regard and does not regard Ukraine as a vital interest, even though Russia doesn't, therefore shouldn't be concerned about defending Ukraine from Russia. Just like that view is a longstanding mainstream view, so too is the view that NATO expansion in general, but particularly NATO expansion into Ukraine, is not just perceived by Russian leaders as a grave threat, but is legitimately a grave threat to Russian leaders. And again, this was not the view of fringe Putin defenders. It's not a view that you only heard on RT. The current CIA director, handpicked by Joe Biden, William Burns, wrote a letter to Condoleezza Rice in 2008 that I believe we know about because it was part of the disclosures of WikiLeaks, in which he very aggressively condemned the idea of the Bush administration to offer NATO membership to former Soviet republics and especially to bordering countries, including Ukraine. And if you go and read that letter, which people have written about in the last couple of weeks. It's incredible how prescient it was. What William Burns said, and again, this is not some leftist fringe professor. This is the current director of the Central Intelligence Agency. What he said in 2008 was he spent a lot of time in Russia. And the thing that strikes him so much about this question of NATO expansion is that it's not just Vladimir Putin or what he called the knuckle draggers in the recesses of the Kremlin who view NATO expansion as incredibly threatening. It's every Russian 
including the enlightened liberal opponents and critics of Putin. Even they view the idea of NATO membership in bordering states, and particularly in Ukraine, as deeply, deeply threatening. That no Russian leader could possibly tolerate that. And what he said was, if you trifle with this, if you end up not even just offering Ukraine membership, but even suggesting you're considering it, it will inevitably provoke Putin or whoever is leading Russia to start getting very aggressive both in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. So this is 2008 from William Burns. And there's been a lot of videos circulating from many other very informed people across the spectrum saying very similar things. Noam Chomsky has been saying this for years, the leftist linguistics and political science scholar, political activist. He's certainly a linguistic scholar. I consider him a foreign policy scholar as well. And he says, you can play one video of the next of him talking about how when Russia agreed to reunification of Germany in the 90s, they did so. Obviously, that was an incredibly alarming event for, for Russia to allow the reunification and remilitarization of Germany, the close-by country that has twice almost destroyed the Soviet Union. Obviously, that was a huge fear of Gorbachev that the West wanted to reunify Germany and put East Germany in NATO as part of a reunified Germany. And the concession that Gorbachev bargained for which no one at the time thought was even a problem, was that, okay, you're going to put East Germany, what was East Germany, into NATO, so you've now moved NATO further east, closer to our border. But we'll allow that on the condition that you agree that you will not move NATO one inch to the east beyond Germany. And George Bush and Brent Scowcroft, James Baker all agreed to that because no one thought that NATO expansion was something the United States would do. Why would we? And if anything, you could make the argument that the purpose of NATO disappeared upon the fall of the Soviet Union, given that the purpose was to protect Western Europe from incursions by the Soviet Union and the importation of communist ideology. The Soviet Union ceased to exist and Russia was no longer a communist nation you could argue that the much more rational thing to do was not NATO expansion, but NATO abolition. But they agreed to that because they told Russia, of course, we're not going to expand NATO. That would be ridiculous. We're not going to give Hungary and Poland and Lithuania commitments to go to war with you if in some future, re- for some future reason, you end up in a conflict with them. And yet that's exactly what the United States proceeded to do, violate that promise through the Clinton administration, into the Bush administration, into the Obama administration, and continually expand NATO up to and including not just former Soviet republics, but actual bordering countries of Russia. So when Tulsi Gabbard got mauled just for saying what has long been understood in the most prestigious and mainstream halls of American power, that NATO expansion is genuinely threatening, not just to Putin once he goes insane, but to all Russians rationally, to watch her get 
attacked for just saying that as a way to avert this war, I think also really signified how little room there was going to be for any kind of questioning or dissent. That's all it took to be maligned in the worst ways possible. And obviously watching Russia march into Ukraine has only stimulated these emotions, these kind of visceral tribalistic reactions we have in war. So that now the questioning, the ability to question the space for dissent has diminished even further. And I think social media has greatly exacerbated it. In part because it's much easier to make this villainization or demonization of somebody turn into this kind of sense of mob justice very quickly because of social media. I think it's in part because it's very easy to curate and not just easy, but tempting to curate what your information diet is on social media to only hear all the people and things that you want to hear who are going to validate what you want to believe. And with one click of the button, make disappear everybody who's questioning or challenging the things you want to believe. So it's probably the most potent weapon for self-reinforcement and self-validation and creating a closed propagandistic system of any that's ever been invented. And the ease with which fake stories viralize and spread with nobody questioning them is stunning. Stunning. It's, it's amazing to me that American elites have been obsessed with what they call disinformation for six or seven years now to the point where they're demanding the internet be turned into this cesspool of censorship by big tech. And yet at the same time, I'm not exaggerating, almost every major story, mini story, kind of like microcosm story that's supposed to illustrate how we think about the world that has become so popular to spread on social media has proven to be either completely unverified or outright false. And it's been spread by members of Congress and very prominent members of the media. Things like the ghost of Kiev, the heroic and feisty Ukrainian fighter pilot who single-handedly shot down six Russian planes. And it turned out that the pictures and the videos were a combination of deep fakes and video games, images from video games, that that person did not exist. It was a complete hoax. Or the story of how the Ukrainian soldiers who told the Russian ship to go fuck itself and then fought valiantly to the death instead of surrendering and all 13 of them were killed and were going to be turned into martyrs by Ukraine. It ended up that they actually did surrender and are very much alive and in Russian custody. Please go down the list. So many like that. Zelensky and body armor supposedly fighting on the front front lines against Russia, even though that those pictures were taken many months ago of him just in a typical military exercise. Just on and on. I documented them in the article. So what you have is no space to question or debate because you're instantly turned into a, a traitor or a Kremlin agent if you are. And there's a few people who don't care because we don't need to. 
But most people have to care about that sort of thing. It can be reputation destroying or career ending. And when they see people like Tucker Carlson and, and Tulsi Gabbard be villainized to that extent, of course, the message is sent very clearly that even if you share these same questions and concerns, you better keep quiet about them at this moment of high emotional and tribalistic intensity, unless you want to be similarly ostracized the way they were. And maybe you're a lawyer or a doctor or someone who works for a corporation and you don't have the same protections they have to take some of that. But also the fact that we're at the point where we seem to want to be propagandized. There's like a sense that it doesn't really matter if a story is true, as long as it serves the interest of the Ukrainians or can undermine Russia, we should endorse it and ratify it and spread it, even if it's false. And that's certainly like a common and expected way for a government in a war to think. Every government in war uses propaganda. But to watch journalists and citizens embracing that idea is alarming. The fact that we we want to have a, a world of lies fed to us. And again, if you stand up and are one of the people saying the story is unverified or doesn't seem true, the tank, the Ukrainian tank that ran over, or the Russian tank that purposely ran over Ukrainian civilians that either could have been an accident or could have been a Ukrainian tank, it's still not determined that went viral all over the place to make people think Russia was engaged in an unprecedentedly, unprecedentedly savage invasion. When we start just getting subsumed by all these lies, and there's no space for anyone to stand up and say, this is false. Now we're not just feeding on a homogenized, unified consensus, but one that is driven by deliberately fabricated and false stories or just unverified stories. It's an incredibly dangerous thing. Even if you are somebody who is absolutely convinced that you have apprehended the 100% correct and indisputable moral framework for understanding this conflict. Russia is is 100% in the wrong and deserves 100% of the blame. Vladimir Putin is a Hitler-like figure not seen since Hitler himself. It's the worst war, the worst aggression since the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Whatever it is you believe, You should have a strong interest in, A, not having false stories be endorsed because that might alter your thinking if the stories you're being fed, especially the most emotionally affecting ones, are are deliberate hoaxes. You should be angry about that. But also, B, you have an interest in ensuring that other people can question your views because maybe it'll turn out that the things you've decided to believe are things you'll come to regret. And that's why I think the lesson of 9-11, this is the last point I'll make and then go to the queue, is such a critical one. You know, I remember when Russiagate broke out and the first time it really came onto my radar was this very heavy-handed, sinister-sounding, dark, innuendo-laden campaign ad from the Clinton campaign asking, but really spreading innuendo in the form of questions, what's going on between Trump and the Kremlin? It was designed, obviously, to suggest strongly that Donald Trump was an agent of Russia or an asset of Russia. That became the predominant theme of the campaign. 
And one of the reasons I instinctively repelled from it is because one of the most important historical events that shaped my political ethos, my political sensibility as a civil libertarian was the McCarthy era, which most civil libertarians, certainly the ACLU, the old school ACLU, anyone who's ever identified as a a civil libertarian views as one of the darkest episodes in the history of civil liberties alongside similar dissent repressing episodes like the Alien and Sedition Act or the Espionage Act in 1917 and the criminalization and imprisonment of opponents of Woodrow Wilson's involvement of the U.S. in World War One. So this idea of suggesting with innuendo that people are have are disloyal, harbor secret sympathies to Russia. This is something I viscerally repelled from, recoiled from. And I thought most people would, especially on the left and even in American liberalism, since they were the targets of it, mostly. And when I saw that they weren't doing that, I really did ask myself why for quite a while. And I came to realize that it's because this assumption that everybody knows the same history that I know is untrue. If you don't know the history of the McCarthy era because you never lived through it or you never studied it, it's totally reasonable that you'd have no reason to think it's off the CIA or the FBI or the media is accusing people with no evidence of being Kremlin agents because you don't realize that that tactic was already used and discredited. So one of the things that originally in the first few moments of metaphorically speaking, first few moments of this conflict that kind of baffled me was how willing people were to embrace a political climate that said, this is a framework of pure good versus pure evil, that everybody who questions not only the narrative, but everything proposed to be done to our enemy is a traitor on the other side. The reason it shocked me that so many people were willing to embrace that was because I thought we had learned the lesson from having lived through 9-11 and the aftermath of it, where the same kinds of consensus arose over all sorts of things. Not Again, not just the moral framework that was true. The 9-11 attack was a moral atrocity, totally unjustifiable, or that Saddam Hussein was an evil dictator, but the, the policy issues. What should we do in response? We should set up due process-free camps, allow the CIA to torture people in the dark, kidnap people out of the streets of Europe with no due process and render them to Syria and Egypt to be tortured, put faith in the CIA and the NSA and the FBI to spy on whoever they want, including all of us, with no constraints. So many times over the last 15, 10 or 15 years, I've heard people saying, wow, you know, I really got swept up in the intensity of the high emotion of 9-11, and it led me to endorse all sorts of things that I regret endorsing. I thought people were going to be more on guard than this against that sort of tribal intoxication. And I guess I quickly realized, like I realized in Russiagate, that the reason that didn't happen is because a large portion of our population didn't live through 9-11 as engaged adults. It's now more than 20 years ago that attack took place. And so if you're 30, 30, you were 10 at the time. If you're 40, 
you were 20, so just barely an adult. So it's a big part of the population that just didn't pay much attention. And an even bigger part of the population that really only began paying attention to politics for the first time in 2016 out of fear of Trump. For them, Trump is the beginning, middle, and end of history. And they know nothing about what preceded it. And that's why it's not just the same tactics being used that were used to prevent dissent in 9-11, but it's the same people, same exact people. I mean, the person who wrote George Bush's speech on September 20th, 2001, in which he proclaimed this binary framework that you're either with us or you're with the terrorists is named David Frum. And in 2003, once he was booted out of the Trump White House, he went to National Review and he wrote an article about right-wing opponents of the war in Iraq. And the article was entitled Unpatriotic Conservatives. Unpatriotic Conservatives. I mean, David Frum built his whole career accusing anyone who questioned the US war, U.S.'s war policies or its moral narrative of being a traitor. That's all he is. And he's doing it now to the great applause, mostly of liberals. Or Nicole Wallace and Matthew Dowd, who were the chief propagandists of the Bush-Cheney re-election campaign in 2004, they ran on that premise that whoever was against the war in Iraq or the greater war on terror was basically a traitor. They're doing the same thing now. They're just doing it for Democrats. Bill Kristol, same thing. You go down the list. Obviously, Liz Cheney, her dad, was the primary overseer of this repressive climate. She's now one of the leaders of maintaining it. So it's all the same people, not just the same things, the same people. So you would think there'd be way more skepticism this time around, given the lessons we all say we've learned from having lived through that. The problem is millions and millions and millions of people didn't live through it. And many more who did forgot or just misremember what the lessons were supposed to be. And that's why it's not a surprise that we are now at the point where serious people with a lot of influence, Adam Kinzinger, the Republican congressman from Illinois, who's celebrated for having become a leading Trump critic from within the Republican Party, also for being a combat veteran, said we should create a no-fly zone in Ukraine. The U.S. should, meaning we should tell the Russian army and the Russian Air Force, if you attempt to fly over this territory, we're going to shoot your planes down, which is an obvious declaration of war against Russia. And leading NBC journalists or personalities, whatever you want to call them, like Richard Engel, also said the same thing. He said, there's like a convoy of Russian troops marching into Kiev, why aren't we airbombing them? It's it's insane. Why don't we go directly into war with Russia? The reason it's not a surprise that that's happening just less than a week into this war is because the more people feed on this crowd and mob mentality, the more people wake up every day just, Putin is evil. Putin deserves to be destroyed. We must protect the ethically pure Ukrainians and their sacred democracy, the further and further you go, because you're you're not operating on the capacity of reason or the faculties of rationality, you're operating on the 
most visceral and instinctive drives that have been cultivated over millennia about our tribal identity and what we do to defend our tribe. And it leads to all kinds of places that aren't just reckless, but the opposite of rationality. And the fact that we're already at that point, and granted, it's still a minority position. Most people in Washington are saying, thankfully, it's insane to want to construct a no-fly zone or directly engage Russian troops. But I think it's the byproduct of allowing for such a homogenized and closed system of propaganda where very little dissent is heard and where whenever it emerges, it's instantly demonized, not as just a wrong opinion, but as evidence of treason or being on the side of Putin, which at this point is almost equivalent to accusing somebody of being a Nazi sympathizer. It's a very unhealthy discourse and climate, no matter what your views are. So I'm going to try and warn about that for as much as I can, because I presume at some point this intoxication will break and we'll start to get more open to the idea of what should we be doing and how can this war end? But for the moment, it's, I think, genuinely alarming, dangerous, how our debates are being carried out. Um, So with that, I will leave you there. I generally try and end the show after 90 minutes, but since I've spoken up until this point, I'm going to go ahead and try and give as much time as I can to take as many callers as possible. So when I call your name um, and you're in the queue, just go ahead and unmute yourself and we should be able to hear you. The first uh, caller is Kosha. Go ahead, Kosha. Kusha. Sorry about that. Kusha, good evening. No worries. It's a tremendous pleasure to be in dialogue with you for a second time, Glenn. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the rich foundation you laid uh, in this past hour out. Thank you. Awesome. So you said something, and I think it's very important to note as an anniversary, because this October will mark the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which you mentioned and touched on. I think it's very important to give a specific shout out to the person who saved the world, literally, Vasily Arkhipov. I know you watched the Oliver Stone a documentary series, the Untold History of the U.S., and yep. you clearly know that it was Arkhipov who was... Um, Hey, are you there? Um, I don't know if it's on my end, but I've stopped hearing you. Shout out and making sure we still have a world to live in. I know it's very dangerous right now because Putin put uh, nuclear forces on high alert. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, I'm going to keep going then. And so you mentioned as well about the Iran nuclear deal and to analyze as well as the Syrian civil war. Now, why are both of these so crucial? Well, especially because the Syrian civil war marked a big turning point when it came to the military interventions of Vladimir Putin's Russia, specifically in the sense that we have to analyze the story in full and thoroughly and evaluate the facts as we see them, the empirical, objective um, facts that make up our material reality. And we know that Obama's intervention uh, through NATO in Libya and the subsequent uh, impalement and murder of Muammar Gaddafi by NATO-backed rebels 
was a very pivotal um, watch for Vladimir Putin. After he saw that footage, he decided there's no way I could allow a similar circumstance to allow uh, to occur in Syria for Bashar al-Assad. And so um, that's why he decided once Qasem Soleimani went directly to Putin uh, and asked for his support and intervention, Putin was all in about it. Um, and, but I think also it's important to mention that the Islamic Republic of Iran was the one who went directly to save Putin in Syria before ISIS was even like a serious consideration of a threat. Um, if we look at what Mahmoud Shaharbaghi said, he's one of the um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps commanders. He said that, quote, Soleimani's mission was not to not let Bashar al-Assad's government fall. ISIS was not present at the time. That's what he said. He said the Mussolini means opposition, who opposed Bashar al-Assad were there. Those two must be differentiated. And I will tell you the difference between Mosalain and ISIS. Um, the Mosalain were the opponents of Assad who had risen to bring Assad down. At the time, most of Syria was in the hands of the enemy. And then he also says they'd even gotten close to Bashar al-Assad's palace. And so this is one thing. And another thing about the Iran nuclear deal is that importantly, you said whatever anyone's critique may be about it. Well, my critique about it is that, yes, no one wants nuclear weapons in the world. I think Foremost, the United States needs to play the role, and this is what I raised to Justin Amash on his podcast, the first time I spoke to him, that the United States needs to play the role of reducing its own nuclear weapons stock hold of thousands of nuclear weapons so they can serve as a model for China, for Russia, for North Korea, Israel. We know they have eight, um, tens, if not hundreds, thanks to the whistleblowing efforts of Mordecai Vanunu and Pakistan, India, and so on, France, the British. I don't want anyone to have them. And I think Chomsky's point about like denuclearizing the Middle East starting with Israel is, of course, something that I agree with as well. And the fact of the matter is that when Obama, I believe, based off the evidence that I've seen regarding his correspondence with Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, uh, he's written, he'd written four letters to Khamenei at least. If you look at a Washington, uh, sorry, Wall Street uh, Journal article by Jay Solomon and Carol E. Lee published uh, November 6, 2014, or at least updated then, they mentioned that Obama had written at least four letters. And he also talks about in his recent book to Khamenei, I believe that the nuclear deal was very much an effort by the Obama administration to try to bridge a relationship with the Islamic Republic of Iran to bring it under its hegemony, or at least try to mitigate the severity of the tensions. What do I mean by that? Well, we know that the United States has no problem allying itself with dictators. That's very obvious. The way I see it, there's a general framework of four ways the United States sees autocrats and dictators. One is like as pretty firmly steadfast allies like Salman bin Abdulaziz of Saudi Arabia, El-Sisi of Egypt, Batista in Cuba, Pinochet in Chile, Suharto in Indonesia, Muhammad Reza, Reza Pahlavi Shah in Iran. Two, those who have always been pretty much enemies, quasi-enemies, or one state away from that status, like the Assad family, Chavez, Maduro in Venezuela, Ortega in Nicaragua, Gaddafi in Libya. Three, those who were intended or actual allies that went rogue, like Noriega in Panama, Hussein in Iraq, Trujillo in Dominican Republic, and the Islamic Republic of Iran, Khomeini, who essentially became the stubborn mule, and he admitted he did khodeh karada, means I deceived. And four, I think less filled this category, but enemies to some degree or another who later became allies, like Anwar Sadat after the Camp David Accords. And I think this is very important in analyzing Putin's beginnings of military interventions. And that's not to say that there weren't those prior. We know the Chechen war, uh, Dagestan and Georgia, annexation of Crimea and so on. And lastly, what I'll conclude on, I'd love to hear your analysis as always, is that the Islamic Republic of Iran was happy when Muammar al-Gaddafi was killed. If you look at what the foreign minister said 
Ramin Mehimparast. He said, quote, the inevitable fate of all dictators and oppressors who do not respect the rights of the people is destruction. The Islamic Republic of Iran welcomes this great victory and congratulate the Muslim people and the Libyan National Transition, Count, National Transition Council, end quote. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Glenn. Thank you. Yeah, so that was uh, super interesting, um, just like it, it was the last time. So you're always welcome back. Um, let me just uh, make a couple points based on uh, several other things you raised. First of all, I do think it's worth underscoring um, how close the United States came during the Cuban Missile Crisis to actually engaging in a actual major exchange of nuclear weapons with the then Soviet Union. Um, I think there's a tendency to believe, and I think you saw this prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that a lot of people um, are instinctively ready to disbelieve that something unimaginably terrible could happen, which is why so many people even people who have been experts in, in Putin and Russia for a long time, just didn't believe that he would actually do something like what he did. It's not because they're, uh, they don't think well or because they're misinformed. It's because there's like a human instinct to believe it can't happen. And that's even more so with something like a nuclear exchange. So unimaginably hideous, even though the United States has already used the most primitive and early versions twice against Japan during World War II so unimaginable that there would actually be a full-on nuclear exchange between two neurocon powers. I think that's the reason why there's sometimes a little bit of recklessness. And you see that in these people who are saying, let's go do a no-fly zone. I don't really believe that Putin would actually risk a nuclear war. It's kind of bizarre given that just five days ago, the overwhelming consensus that we were supposed to believe was that Putin's invasion of Ukraine proved that he had taken leave of his senses, that he had gone insane, that he was no longer uh, the Putin of 10 years ago, bounded by, bound by rationality, that because of a desire for conquest or humiliation or legacy, he was willing to do crazy things, unhinged things that previously he wouldn't have done. Suddenly now we're supposed to believe that the idea that he would use nuclear weapons if he were directly attacked by the United States, despite him having threatened that he would, is something just unthinkable. It's not unthinkable. The United States and the Ru- and Russia came very close on at least very close, like minutes away close from doing it at least twice, probably more times than we realize. Once wars start, misinformation as we're seeing is very easy to spread. Misperceptions arise, a failure to communicate. Russians are pulling diplomats out of Western countries. There's almost no communication between Russia and the United States, which creates a much higher degree of of danger that the two countries could just misperceive each other's intentions. So I, I think it's really worth underscoring. And this is why I always was so disturbed by Russiagate. Had Russiagate just been a laughable evidence-free scandal where the media just kind of went insane because of their anger over Trump's election, talking about PP tapes and blackmail and just, crazy, crazy stuff. You mock it, it would be kind of preposterous, but it was always way more than that to me. It was always the danger was that they created a climate where it was basically inherently suspect, not criminal for American diplomats or officials even to talk to Russians. And I do think a major byproduct of Russiagate is what we're seeing now, both on the Russian side, which now views the United States 
in a much more threatening manner because the United States has become much more hostile to Russia after the 2016 election. And I think Americans, so many Americans have been so primed, pumped with hatred and rage and anger toward Russia and Putin that the first available moment they have to vent that, it's just this gigantic outpouring of collective hatred and, and, a, and a thirst for destruction that I think is very dangerous. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you just read the Cuban Missile Crisis and other really dangerous events in the, the Cold War, you will lose very quickly your kind of just implicit disbelief that nuclear war is possible. Uh, let me go to the next caller, which is Lee. Go ahead and unmute yourself, Lee. Hello, Glenn. How are you? I am so grateful to you for all the hard work you do and the courage that you show and that you model for younger adults who who can maybe see the insanity and don't know what to do at all. And I'm an old Beyond War person. You're too young to remember it was an educational foundation. An old pal of Matt Taibbi's was on his call in last month, a physician who was assuring us that Physicians for Social Responsibility is out there doing what they can to have people understand that since Hiroshima, we are just on the brink, which you've been talking about this time and have repeatedly. That is an important fact that maybe needs to be repeated more in a grassroots way. And so I have a question for you that's out of the box. You know, it's, it seems laughable on the face of it. But, you know, just like when you hear Tulsi get on social media and say, okay, presidents, Putin, you know, Biden, et cetera, let's stop this now. I mean, that's what everybody, most people can see obviously needs to happen. You have so many of my peers who drink the Kool-Aid with Rachel. It's just mind blowing, which totally has to do, in my view, with the tribal tendencies that are so deeply seated that you've explained to people many times and young people need to understand this, how, how intensely powerful that is. But if some smart, articulate, well-informed, highly principled grownups like you, you know, Taibi wouldn't be available, but and Tulsi probably would lose her commission if she did it. But, you know, Moral leaders, you know, you've proven yourself with what you did when you got your Pulitzer Prize and at least got that recognition and thank goodness you're still alive. But, you know, I just, my heart aches for Assange's family. I have people who are on the spectrum, really successful professionals who are just as much on, you know, supposedly spectrum as Assange's and they hate him just because they don't want to be excluded from their social group. You know, it's just crazy. And he's he should be our hero. He was not that long, long ago because of what he's disclosed to us about the corruption of the, our two parties. So is there a group somehow, you know, I doubt it would be, I doubt if it would include the Pope, but moral leaders just anywhere that might have some clout anywhere who can stand on principle, which of course you're risking your life when you do it and could somehow outside of the media storm can somehow reframe all of this 
you know, it's not exactly like we want to apologize to Putin, but essentially steel man him and acknowledge what you've been saying, that there is a solution. Tulsi is highly qualified. She sees it. You know, this NATO is, I mean, I, I grew up in the Marine Corps. My father's a highly decorated officer from Korea and Vietnam, and he's to the left of all of us, <laughs> and, and as is my mother, and you, you know, my brother was a military officer too, and, and I mean, we're, I'm there to the left of me, and I've raised four children who, whose future I worry about. So, you know, back to that question, anytime I ask anybody, they say, no, there, is, there are no people who will do that. But, I mean, even Lex Friedman, I mean, he's not just, I mean, personalities aside, he can reach Putin. He's Russian. He's become buddies with Elon and all these people. You have a lot of pals in common in your social media successes. I mean, a bunch of fellows who are really principled, you know, obviously Rogan would be, you know, he's become more willing to step up these days, which is impressive. Um, do you see any way, because this is all about selling media. This is this crap on TV. I don't have a TV, but I look at other people's TV. It's all about, you know, how it's going to affect Biden's presidency. It's not about resolution and the fact that we're playing with extinction. Yeah. So let me just uh, step in here. Um, those are some, some great points. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, one of the things that, has been, I think, very disturbing about the this this tendency, this growing temptation to want to control discourse and censor everybody and punish people for dissent and purge dissenters from various institutions to the point of not even allowing certain viewpoints to be heard online is that there were supposed to be specific institutions in our society that were designed always to question and poke at and undermine and subvert prevailing orthodoxies. I mean, there are institutions that are built to guarantee the ability that uh, of people within them to do that because we always want to have healthy societies want to have everything questioned. So academia is obviously one place through tenure and academic freedom where you're supposed to be guaranteed you will never be fired. You'll never lose your job because of the ideas you express, no matter how seemingly hateful or crazy or offensive or whatever. But another one is was always supposed to be journalism. I mean, a, the whole point of being a journalist was we were supposed to be adversarial to power centers. We were supposed to challenge what they were saying, apply skepticism to their messaging, be outsiders who would rather throw rocks at the windows of big palaces as opposed to being invited in for parties inside of them. That was supposed to be the classic mindset of a, of a journalist. And I think the combination of having academia become increasingly homogenized where people have their reputation destroyed for any off key idea combined with what really are the financial uh, changes in journalism have almost completely neutered both of those two key societal sectors for that. I mean, I remember, you know, during Russiagate, I would get messages all the time from people inside major media outlets who worked as journalists, mostly younger ones, but even people in mid-career, middle age, 
who didn't have a big platform or weren't very well known and therefore kind of had to keep their head low to keep their job, who would write to me and say, I really appreciate your skepticism and the arguments you're making against Russiagate, even though I don't always agree with all the ones you're saying. I'm glad there's someone out there like you saying it. And implicitly what they were saying is I can't do that. And I, I understood why, you know, when you watch an industry where jobs are disappearing through layoffs and all kinds of financial struggles. And whenever a job opens up, there's 50 or 80 people applying for the same position, all of whom are qualified. The last thing you want to do is spend even one day being the kind of bad person on Twitter, the one who people accuse of being a racist or a traitor or a white nationalist or a fascist or a Putin apologist, you're going to be petrified of that because the next round of layoffs, it's going to be really easy when your editor has to decide which 14 people get fired to put you in, in, in that group. And when some other editor has, you know, 60 resumes on her desk for one position and sees yours, so easy to pick yours right out and throw it in the trash can because she doesn't want to be attacked for having hired a whatever. And that has made dissent in journalism much, much more difficult. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why independent platforms like this one, like Rumble, like Colin, like podcasts, like Joe Rogan and his sector of the media are growing because the more homogenized the sector becomes, the less trustworthy it becomes. And I think just the more unhealthy it becomes, the more prone they are to, to commit errors. So, you know, Look, I, I think 9-11, the, the, the touch phrase of the time, the catchphrase of the time was 9-11 changed everything. I think it was an overstatement, but it certainly did change a lot of things. It changed a lot of people's minds politically about how to think about their government, what to trust, what not to trust. The financial crisis of 2008 did the same. I think this is clearly going to be one of those moments. I worry that it's going to be a change in the wrong direction. You know, if you look at polling, like I said before, just a few weeks ago, a small minority of Americans wanted the United States to play a major role in a conflict in in Ukraine with Russia. And now polls show very high percentages who say yes when asked whether they view Russia and the conflict between Russia and Ukraine as a direct and major threat to the United States. People have a negative opinion of Russia. It's something like 85 or 90% now in the United States. It's like 9-11 type numbers about the war in Afghanistan, like 9 out of 10 Americans favoring a war in Afghanistan, which now large majorities believe was a mistake. So I I am concerned that people are going to say, wow, this time the CIA got everything right. This time the United States military, the intelligence community, our neocons, our elites, our media, they're all on the right side. And it's going to revitalize faith in not just those institutions, but also their ideology. But we'll see how things play out. I think that when people are lured into believing something with a lot of certainty and conviction, because everyone they trust is telling them the same thing. And then they find out that they've been misled once again. I think it can also have the opposite effect of yet again, just significantly increasing the levels of distrust people have in institutions of authority, which I continue to think is a positive thing, not all positive because it can manifest in bad ways, but overwhelmingly so. So I'm still rooting for that to happen. 
Uh, next caller is Tom. Uh, go ahead, Tom. You should be in the queue in a moment. Go ahead and unmute yourself. How you doing? Oh, you just kind of touched on what I was thinking about is, you know, I feel like the neoliberal establishment, like the neocons and neoliberals, they're like gloating in this almost. Um, and, they, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, we told you so. And like Russiagate, you know, we were right about that. I feel and I'm like, I'm seeing that on Twitter a lot. And, you know, and I think that, I, I mean, I know that Putin had his reasons for invading, but did we kind of like, I, I didn't see that we tried to, you know, stop it from happening or see a lot of diplomacy going on beforehand. Do you think the Democrats were like kind of playing politics with this? Well, first of all, um, I don't think there's any doubt about the accuracy of what you said. Like there are clearly people who are rolling around in ecstasy and they couldn't be happier. They're so happy. They feel so vindicated, but they also love watching what's going on. There's a paragraph I often quote from Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, which he published in 1776, that in which he basically said that, you know, elites and empires love war in part just because they, they get so much amusement from it. Like they, they, they get a sense of purpose and power and strength, reading about the conquest of their armies, you know, and they don't paying the cost of the war. They're very far away from any of the dangers. It's other people who are in danger. But so their their role is they just pick up the paper in the morning and they read about all the excitement and they, they get excited, you know, like pulsating excitement runs through their bodies and they get sad when the war ends because it 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 takes away their purpose and enjoyment and entertainment. I think it's a big part of why the media loves war and why people in Washington and other places like it love it also. I mean, just go read that Adam Smith quote and you'll see. Um, but, you know, I also, I, I do think that um, there is this, every time that something happens where we get to identify an enemy that we're all supposed to hate, this like unprecedented enemy, it kind of wipes the slate clean of all the sins and failures of American elites. Like, all that matters is this unprecedented evil Donald Trump. He's like no one else that we've ever seen before. So now everybody who's against Trump becomes heroic. Regard, We don't care what they did 10 years ago or five years ago. And now with Putin, same thing. Like if Putin's invasion of Ukraine is this unprecedented evil, then it means the people responsible for Iraq or the clandestine war in Syria or Libya no longer have anything to answer for because there's something way worse that they're now opposing. And that's why, I don't know if you saw that clip, but it went around Twitter. It was really amazing. I think Michael Tracy found it. Where on Sunday on Fox News, Harris Faulkner, who was hosting one of the Sunday morning Fox News shows, had as her guest, her primary guest, Condoleezza Rice, George Bush's national security advisor and very vocal proponent of the war in Iraq, one of the architects. It's kind of amazing that she's treated as an expert, given her direct and central responsibility for one of the worst crimes. And if you don't want to call it a crime, certainly the worst oh, yeah, quote, unquote, mistakes. Yeah. And <laughs> Harris Faulkner looked at Condoleezza Rice with a straight face and said, I think that anyone, any country that invades another, 
without legal justification, without being attacked, that in and of itself is a war crime, period. Don't you agree? And Condoleezza Rice said, you're absolutely right. Anyone who attacks another country without legal justification or aggressively is a war criminal. And it never occurred to either of them the the utter absurdity of Condoleezza Rice, of all people, being told that and being and affirming that without realizing that she was... But the reason that can happen is precisely because of what I said, that the slate gets wiped clean when we get a new enemy. And, and the question of political benefit... Not the psychopaths don't know what hypocrisy is. Sorry. Yeah, but yes, true. Although I'm not, you know, I, I think the I think well, <laughs> it's not a common condition for someone to be a psychopath. That think a lot of times it's just what society societal precepts permit, and they tell us, you know, like I said earlier, I alluded to earlier, that if, even if you just believe in American exceptionalism, you would believe that the worst we can do is a mistake, but not an actual act of immorality. That's only for Vladimir Putin. The political issue, I think, is interesting. Obviously, the Republicans in 2002 and then again in 2004 exploited the wars that George Bush and Dick Cheney were advocating, the broader war on terror, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, for great political ends. In general, when there's a war, a country unites behind its leader. But precisely because I don't think Americans care that much about Ukraine and never will, it's not like it was an attack on American soil the way 9-11 was. I don't think this is going to have a lot of political benefits for the Democrats. I think it'll have some short-term benefit for Democrats. You know, people rally behind the leader. They'll believe for a while that we should all hate Russia. But, you know, in a few months from now, when gas prices are out of control and supply chain disruptions continue to worsen, I really don't think Ukraine is going to be anywhere near the top 10, anywhere near anyone's top 10 list of things to worry about. Um, so I think whatever benefit Biden is able to squeeze out of being a quote unquote war president or whatever is very limited and, and even more so very temporary. Okay. Well, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Thank you for, for calling. I really appreciate it. Um, next up is Dan or Don. I'm sorry. It's a little hard to read until you enlighten yourself by clicking mute. I think it's Don. Go ahead, Don. Don, are you there? The unmute button is uh, the little microphone icon at the bottom. There should be a little line through it that says you're on mute. And if you click it, it should unmute you. I'll just give you a few seconds. Um, Right. I'm sorry. It didn't work out this time. Uh, I'll go ahead and take the next caller which is, is it, you go ahead and pronounce your name for me because I'm going to botch it if I try. Yeah, it's Himalo. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Wow, that's pretty cool. I see you on the screen all the time and I'm talking to you. Anyways, um, I'm 26 years old and I only mentioned that because um, I'm kind of one of that generation that has absolutely no memory about 9-11 and, you know, uh, the build up to the war of Iraq and everything. I was too busy enjoying cartoons. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, I kind of wanted to bring this back into the media sphere and talking about war, um, because my particular generation now, I think you probably know this, is development of uh, streamers and their weird integration into politics now. So most popular one is Vosh at the moment, who's been pretty much pro-Ukraine all the way, um, almost becoming a Ukrainian nationalist himself. And it's kind of just funny and interesting to see because these are all independent you know, streamers are people, by the way, if anyone knows, they're just like folks that go on live streams and shoot the shit about politics and stuff, uh, mostly young around my age and even younger at times. And it's sort of interesting because they're supposed to be independent. They're like free thinkers, supposedly. They aren't, you know, being paid by any particular government or uh, state entity or, you know, a corporation or anything like that. They're just individuals. And yet when you take Bob Vosh's case they immediately become very easily just pro-war people. And it's it's sort of this interesting thing that I think shows the limitations of just human beings in general rather than just, you know, corporations and state governments, you know, having um, control over narratives. I don't know. Just curious about your thoughts about all of that. And No, know, it's, it, it's, been, it's, it's been fascinating to watch given that you would think this kind of, streaming culture and i've only paid attention to the to the extent it's become politicized and influential politically that you would think it would be inherently anti-establishment given as you said that it is a very independent way to uh, earn a living and to make yourself heard you don't rely i mean twitch is owned by amazon so there's that but beyond the fact that you're just using amazon's platform you don't answer to or have your messaging shaped by directly any corporate structure you don't have editors it's a world that i guess is primarily based on video games um which i only know because i fought with my kids over it so many times i remember telling my kids for years and i finally gave up like look i understand if you want to play video games i guess that's i can relate to that I do not understand why you want to watch other people playing video games, why you want to sit and watch other people playing video games. But it is a video game culture, and there's something, I suppose, at least on the surface, like from a branding perspective, a little bit of a dissident ethos to to video games and video game culture. Um, The age issue by itself, should direct people into an anti-establishment mindset that's just a normal part of a developmental process that when you're young, you rebel against establishment dictates and seek to be transgressive. That's always been why young people have been attracted to whichever politics is more anti-authoritarian and aggressive, obviously with lots of exceptions, but on the whole. Um, And yet the way in which those people and when you put you kind of independent YouTubers into this category as well, have just instantly embraced the most conventional politics by identifying themselves pretty much as just standard Democratic Party loyalists, even if it's the kind of like on the left wing of the Democratic Party, is really striking. Um, you know, and I think it's in part because they thought they were and were told they were participating in a political revolution when they organized primarily around Bernie Sanders, who, you know, is basically, uh, even though he still calls himself an independent, is a very loyal member of the Democratic Party 
for decades now, first in the House and then the Senate, and marched them after he withdrew directly into Joe Biden's arms, and not unwillingly, but like enthusiastically, you know, saying it's a moral obligation to defeat Donald Trump and do everything we can to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And AOC and, and that whole strain of politics, you know, whatever kind of anti-democratic party uh, impulse it has is all but gone. Like it's only there in the branding. I mean, you barely, I mean, AOC is, our political relevance is almost completely disappeared. And, you know, they became hardcore Russiagators and were fully on board with the prevailing foreign policy view of from 2016 to 2020 that Russia is a grave threat. And on top of that, when you are constantly connected this way to the internet and to these kind of group dynamics, um, you know, one of the things I quoted was in the article I wrote was a passage from Brave New World, the 1931 novel by Adolf Huxley, in which he so perfectly describes what happens when you go from being an individual to being a member of a group to being a member of a crowd or a mob in the way in which all reason is lost. And yeah, I mean, none of us are immune. It's not a question of being of superior intellect. It's again, we're social and political animals. We're driven to be influenced by these, by these mobs, but there's almost no anti-authoritarian politics on that part of the kind of soft left. And, you know, I think for a little bit of a while, they were telling themselves that they were the real anti-war activists because the imperialists or the warmongers were the Russians. And so by opposing the Russians, they were the opposing imperialism and opposing war. And I guess there was like a surface level attraction to that argument, but very quickly it morphed into let's collapse the Russian economy. Let's impose crippling sanctions on all of Russia. Let's kick Russian students out of the United States. Let's ban Russian athletes from participating. Let's send stinger missiles and 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 javelins and even you know fighter jets to the Ukrainians. Let's give them intent. So once you're you know actively you know enthusiastically advocating the weapons of war and utilizing the instruments of war, you long ago left behind any pretense of anti-war activism. But I don't think that bothers them. I think. You know, they just their instinct is very much to align themselves with and identify with mainstream standard Democratic Party politics because the people who they decided they trusted and admired most, Bernie Sanders and AOC principally, led them right into that uh, direction. And there was very little resistance to it. Yeah, we probably need a new anti-war movement or something. (laughs) But thanks so much for answering my question. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I'll just uh, go ahead and take the next caller here, but we'll add before I do that, you know, part of the reason why I have been more willing to kind of open up a dialogue um, between parts of the right and, you know, up here on Tucker Carlson's show or Laura Ingram's show, um, be interested in certain political figures from that faction is because I do think because of Donald Trump and the way he ran not just in the general election, but in the 2016 primary against the war in Iraq and against Bush Cheney regime change policies. And, you know, based on the arguments I was outlining earlier that we should pursue cooperation with Russia and put America first, which means we don't go around the world changing governments. Um, there has become more space on the right to say things like Tucker Carlson and Tulsi Gabbard were saying, um, which is, 
you know, I don't consider Tulsi Gabbard on the right, but she had to go to Fox News to say it, which was, why should we as Americans try and dictate the outcome of a war on the other side of the world that we're not involved with? Um, And that may not be a new anti-war movement, but it's certainly always been the foundation for anti-war arguments. Some of the most strident and intelligent and insightful anti-war writers before the invasion of Iraq were people like Pat Buchanan and Ron Paul and, you know, kind of paleo-conservatives and neo-isolationists, if you really want to call them that. So I regard it as an important enough cause and very kind of dripping and drooping if it exists at all on the left that I'm willing to go anywhere and partner with not anyone, but almost anyone in order to form what essentially is a coalition against this constant, relentless, endless American involvement in wars that we have no business fighting. All right, let me take one last caller. Uh, If you're in the queue and I didn't get to you, I apologize. Thank you for waiting. And I hope you will come back uh, next week when we do our show. Um, But the next and the last caller is going to be Barbara. Um, Go ahead and unmute yourself, Barbara. Just one second, you'll be up in the queue. Okay, thank you very much uh, for doing this live stream. Um, I am probably much older than everybody else that's called in. I'm 62 years old. I'm a mom of five, a mother of five and grandmother of 11. Um, I am a traditionalist Roman Catholic, and I have been kind of disturbed by how the Catholic community has been rallying behind the Ukraine, basically because many Ukrainians are Roman Catholic and people are very uh, polarized about that. And I feel that the narrative has gotten very overheated in that community. And um, I have been going under a huge transformation because due to my age, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s where there was a great hatred for the country. And so I really always emphasized loyalty. The U.S. government could be trusted We were a force for good in the world. We were constantly riding to people's rescue. Um, In seventh grade, I got into arguments with people defending Richard Nixon. And I cannot believe how things have transformed. And now I don't trust the government. I don't trust what's going on in Ukraine. And I'm very worried that this could blow into something much more than what anyone expects. And I see a parallel between the position that Russia is in now and Japan was in in 1940 when we cut off their oil supply and they felt they had no alternative but to go to war. And I'm very worried that that could happen again. And I wonder if you see that as a possibility. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm thrilled to hear from you and to listen to your trajectory, which I think is way more common than most people understand. It was kind of the perfect you know, bridge and segue into what I was just saying about what clearly has become a growing space on the American right to question policies of imperialism and militarism and faith in, 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 in our leaders and our security state, all of the things that once were associated with the left when it came to questioning and having skepticism and doubt about those sectors of American ruling class, you find, in my opinion, much more firmly now on the right because of people like yourself. And I think the fact that you lived through that history is, you know, there's no more reliable 
barometer for how we understand and navigate the world and experience. You know, like you were obviously very attuned. You were having arguments about Richard Nixon and the Vietnam War when you were, you know, a young girl. And so you were obviously very alert to what was going on around you and had defended an ideology and a way of looking at the world, which over time you began to critically evaluate. And you looked at subsequent events and realized that perhaps the trust that you had placed in all these institutions, maybe that was always misguided, or maybe these institutions have changed and, and now it's misguided. But that to me is the solid foundation for how people engage in the world. And that's why I think that the fact that there are so many people, and maybe this is the reason history repeats itself in general, because it's always true that the new generation is unaware, doesn't have that experience that you just described, and therefore doesn't have the same ability to resist these sorts of dynamics um, that, you know, are, are very potent, are very powerful. I mean, I feel them. You know, I look at videos on social media of, what is described as Russian troops being doing horrible things to Ukrainians in their own country. And of course they get enraged and I, I feel the same emotions as everybody else. And you just have to have the dedication and, and determination to rely on your reason and not be swayed by those things and to view them skeptically as well and question wh whether what you're seeing is actually what it purports to be, because so many times I said it, that hasn't been true. But on the, well, I, I think also the Ukrainians are victims of the globalist worldview as well as the Russians. I don't think that the average Ukrainian always sees the situation the way we are looking at it. I think that, you know, many of them don't want any war to go on on their soil either, but it's almost like it's out of everyone's control now. And the major players are making the decisions for everyone. And, um, yeah, I don't think the president of the Ukraine is as much of a leader to the Ukrainian people. Well, this is, you know, this is, I, I didn't mention this at the beginning, um, but it's certainly a major point for me. And it's a really dark part of the darkest part, perhaps, of, of what's happening, which is the cynicism that the United States has convinced millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world probably to believe the United States and the West is driven by this benevolent, selfless, noble desire to protect Ukrainians and defend Ukrainian democracy. Right. What I think their intention is the exact opposite. I think their intention is to turn Ukraine into the new Afghanistan. I, uh, I agree. 70s, I agree. You know, in the 1980s, where for those who don't know, I mean, you know, if if one of the ways that the United States brought down the Soviet Union was by getting them trapped inside of Afghanistan and arming the Mujahideen, which was an Afghan insurgency that eventually yes. morphed into the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And it worked. I mean, that was a dev devastating decade-long attempt to occupy Afghanistan by, by the Soviets. It drained so many of the resources and ended in complete failure. And I think the West sees an opportunity to lure Russia and to trap Russia inside Ukraine, which might be a good geostrategic tactic from the perspective of Western military planners, but it's incredibly immoral because the goal would then be to prolong the war as much as possible in Ukraine to keep the Russians trapped in and basically to allow the destruction of Ukraine and Ukrainians along with it 
under the guise of protecting and defending Ukraine is basically sacrificing Ukraine and Ukrainians at the altar of American geopolitical interest. It keeps Russia isolated, which means Western Europe can't buy their natural gas or oil, which means they have to only buy it from the United States, even though it's more expensive. And it undermines a, a competing power. They might destroy a competing power. But the Japan example that you raised is also an important one because there seems to be this glee every time there's new news of how much the ruble has fallen, how much the Japanese, the, the Russian stock market is collapsing. Exactly. I don't, I don't find it very comforting that we're in the process of wrecking the economy of a country with the largest nuclear stockpile on the planet. We have no idea what that would lead to. That level of instability or sense of humiliation or desperation or rage. There are lots of examples. Japan is one where those feelings have led to some very dark, dark decisions. And I think well, because I think really it, it I think it becomes their survival. Then they they feel they have nothing left to lose, that their country will be decimated anyway, and so maybe they'll take some extreme measures and you know lob a nuke at someone or something and have the feeling that we're going down anyway. I mean, you know, it's it's I couldn't agree more uh, with that analysis. Um, you know, if you look at why, if you go and read the interviews of Nuremberg defendants conducted by psychologists to try and determine why Nazism thrived and why so many Germans who weren't necessarily ideologically drawn to Nazism, but nonetheless joined the Nazi party and ended up supporting it. what One of the conclusions is that the humiliation the Germans suffered after World War One and the concessions they were forced to make and the economic destruction that was wreaked that humiliation turned into a kind of psychopathic re- desire for revenge to feel this nationalistic pride, which is what Hitler was promising. Yes. It's basic human nature that if you humiliate someone, make them feel desperate, like with nothing to lose, they'll start considering choices that otherwise they would never consider. I mean, right. Not hard to understand why that's, immensely indescribably dangerous um barbara thank you so much i i really love the fact that uh you waited in line and it was such a perfect note to end the show on and i'm i'm really grateful and hope that you'll come back to participate again well thank you very much i i really admire your stance and the fact that you're telling the truth despite the opposition well thank you so much um and it's because of people like you and and platforms like this that I feel emboldened to do that and uh, and, and, and feel empowered and, and enabled um, in, in my doing that. So um, really enjoyed this discussion. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who came and participated as always. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I also co-host a weekly podcast with the Canadian journalist uh, Q. Anthony which is every Thursday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. I have not yet chosen a fixed regular time for my own podcast since I try and do it when I feel a strong need to to talk. So it's generally, though, around this time, I generally will post notices of it on my social media on Twitter and elsewhere and try to create the room early in the morning so that it will appear on any of your feeds who follow the show so you'll be notified with as much advanced time as possible. Thank you again to everybody who 
waited in the queue and didn't get a chance. I hope you'll come back. Thank you to everybody who participated and who came as well. And I will see you the next time. I hope you have a great evening. Bye-bye.